Welcome to New Jersey Tech Meetup, the podcast. Each episode, we bring you a huge amount of value from past keynotes at our events, fireside chats, and much, much more. Tune in to hear from entrepreneurs such as Gary Vaynerchuk, James Altucher, and your host, Aaron Price. We hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we can't wait to share more episodes with you in the future. The official welcome for David is he's co-founder and CEO of Pivot Desk, a Techstars Boulder 2012 company that helps find room for growing businesses. Having served as a Techstars mentor since the start, he has entrepreneurial experience that runs a spectrum from small startup organizations to large multinational corporations. He previously served as the CEO of Igniter, currently called Step Out, another Techstars Boulder company, and was a co-founder and VP of marketing for One Riot. David was also the managing partner at Venture Voodoo Partners, a consulting firm specializing in brand management for startup organizations. Before making a transition to the startup world, David was the first marketing hire and managing director of global communications for Deloitte, or Deloitte Consulting, actually, I think it's a different thing, right? At, Dave, at Deloitte, David helped lead and manage the global brand launch and communication strategy following Deloitte's, uh, Deloitte Consulting's separation from Deloitte & Touche. The comparative strategy succeeded in distinguishing the brand from its competitors and facilitating the company's rise to one of the top three brands in the country. He also served as EVP GM for Conan Wolf, a New York-based marketing and communications agency. While he was there, he managed several large marketing campaigns, including the introduction of BMW's, Nor is that North America? Yeah, these three roadster in conjunction with the MGM and James Bond 007 movie, Golden Eye. He started his career working for the communications for the Cart and IndyCar racing stories. Maybe that was your old trophy. He did not hit Mariah Carey. Now how about a real official welcome for David Mandel. All right, so since communications is the focus, or a big part of your focus, let's start there. Sure. Um, is that working? Yes. Okay, good. How are we doing on communications tonight? What did you think of these three startups? Uh, I thought they were all very interesting. Um, I had heard of Drive Wealth before. It was nice to actually see them pitch. Um, I thought the other two were compelling. I will, um, because I feel like my job is always to try and help, I will say a few things. We'll take it. Um, the one thing that I think was kind of consistent across all three and something I talk about a lot, especially when presenting and pitching your business, um, is it's really important, and this is for anyone that's starting a business, um, it's really important to remember that nobody gives a shit what you do. And until you really embrace the fact that nobody gives a shit what you do, you won't be really good at pitching your business. And way too many companies that I've seen pitch their business, they start by telling you what they do. Hence the problem with not remembering the first rule in pitching. So for example, Pivot Desk. We are a tech-enabled platform that drives real estate and financial transactions around shared space for multiple people across many markets. How interesting is that? I don't think it sounds that great. I don't think it sounds very that is. I was worried for a minute, but I'm pretty sure it didn't sound good. No, when you talk about Pivot Desk, we talk about the fact that when you're out there busting your ass trying to grow your business, the last thing you should do is bet your business on a five-year lease when you can't predict how big you're going to be five months from now. Or when you have to commit to a long-term lease and you're struggling out there to build your business, the weight and, the, and the, the liability of that lease should not be weighing on your head every day. Real estate is static. Businesses are dynamic. We're a cloud service that helps you grow your business the way it should, not the way real estate dictates. How many people here have heard of Pivot Desk or, or have heard of it before, learning about David? So not too many. Why don't you tell people, I mean, beyond that, right. give people the 60 second or less. So continue. We do that by... Now we talk about what we do, but I don't have the right to tell you what we do until you care. And I think that's really the point there, is when you get up and talk about your business, you have to get people to care first. You have to make that emotional connection. But how do you judge if someone cares? 
by watching their reaction and by listening and by practicing over and over and over and over again until you find the right phrasing and the right words and the right story to tell your business. And if you don't think you need to practice, then you're just going to lose. So tell me a time when someone didn't care and what you did to get them back on track. I moved on to someone that did. Just let them go. Find early adopters. Let them go. I don't have time to convince people that don't want to hear about it. My job is to figure out the right way to convince the right people and get them plugged into our platform. So the way we do that, the way we help people grow their business is by matching up small companies that can't bet their business on a five-year lease yet with companies that have extra space in their lease because you know they took more space than they need because they're assumed they're going to go into it through a platform that's focused mostly on culture because when you're sharing your space, your culture is much more important than the actual address. And once you find the right match, we handle all the details involved. So nobody has to be a landlord. Nobody has to be a tenant. Both sides can just focus on growing their business for as long as they need to focus and share, and share in that relationship. So it's a flexible platform that helps you grow your business. It's not a traditional lease. You're not stressed about when do I have to deal with a personal guarantee on my lease? When do I have to, do I have to move my company every year because my lease isn't going to work? The traditional real estate industry is focused on one thing, monetizing their infrastructure, not helping you grow your business. So we help you grow your business the way it should. So not to spend too much time on real estate, but what are some just general common pitfalls people make if they are entering into a lease or if they are potentially, like how can they judge for, for culture with or without a pivot desk? What should people be aware of? Um, so if you're signing a traditional lease, the single biggest piece of advice I would give you is find a good broker and let them be a good broker. And what I mean by that is way too many people are scared of brokers. They don't want to trust one. They don't want to give them an exclusive. They lowball them when they talk about their budget. They don't give them the real details because they're scared they're going to be taken advantage of. And the best way to understand how to navigate the commercial real estate industry is to work with a professional that understands the commercial real estate industry and let them be good at what they do. So I think that's the single biggest mistake most first-time leaseholders make is they just by tenant by by default don't trust their broker. Um, so I think these are people that understand how it works. If you're honest with them and you give them a chance, they can usually do good things for you. But too many people don't trust them. So <clears throat> we got a little off track because we you, yeah, you, I, I listened to the story and the communication, but I want to spend a little bit more time going back to the communications uh, skill set. Yes. Maybe using some of the examples tonight to, to make everyone uncomfortable. What's something that one of these companies could have done more effectively? And how, how would you have, what, what's some of the feedback you would have given if you were talking to these companies? Uh, I think the, the two biggest comments I would make is, is the first is energy. So I think a lot of them gave good presentations, but it, they didn't, none of them came across as really being passionate about what they do. And I think that's an important thing, A, because as I said before, you want to make that emotional connection with your audience, which I think is really critical, but especially if you're looking for investment. Right? Investors look for people that will, will do anything they need to do to build their business. They're not just up there talking about it. So for example, if I'm sitting here and the place that I need to get to is four buildings away, investors want someone that's going to run through every goddamn wall between here and there to get that done. And that passion has to be communicated when you pitch your business because that's the easiest way to make that, that connection. The last thing I would say, and, and this is a mistake that almost everybody that pitches their business makes, is they close weekly. And what I mean by that is the close of your pitch is the second most important part of your entire pitch. Once you open and get people interested and you tell them what's going on and you deliver your pitch, close strong. People are going to remember a couple of things that you said. So don't close with, 
hey, thanks for listening to me tonight. If you want to talk, I can be reached here. Feel free to find me after the presentation. We can talk or we're raising money. Come find me or my partner. Close with, here's why this fucking matters. Thank you. Right, like, leave it big because that's the last chance you have to leave an impression on the people you're presenting to. So, How, do you, how much money have you guys raised for Pivot Desk? Um, we've raised about 10 million so far. How do you close that pitch? The pitch that I, yeah. that I used to raise capital? Yeah. Um, so for the record, it's online. Anyone can watch the first pitch we made for Pivot Desk, and I would actually recommend, finding, I'll give you the URL so you can, if you want to distribute it. Um, but it was very strong. In fact, um, so if anyone knows how Techstars runs, you know, it's 10 companies and you get up on a very big stage. We're at the Boulder Theater, so about 500 people or so in the audience. And 10 companies, I think we actually had 11 companies pitch. Um, and we were the last company, um, which I think was great. And I think they actually put us last because we had a strong pitch. And remember, the majority of the investors, the, the audience there were potential investors and people that were looking at investing in the business. Um, so the way I closed my business, um, I, the way I closed my pitch was actually a plea to those investors, understanding their drive not to invest in us, but to believe in Pivot Desk because the next company that uses Pivot Desk and can hire a developer that they couldn't afford before, or the next company that uses Pivot Desk that actually succeeds because they weren't overwhelmed by a staggering list they couldn't deal with, or the next company that uses Pivot Desk and gets out there and actually changes the world. That's the reason that you should invest in Pivot Desk. So that was from four years ago. So to put you on the spot, how that was putting me on the spot, by the way, from four years ago. I <laughs> pulled that out of my ass, but that is what we did. Yeah. <laughs> to continue to put you on the spot, um, how would you have closed out uh, Woody's presentation tonight, Woody's clothing? Uh, I don't know how I would have closed it because, again, that, you know, they need to know what he really wants to leave people with. Um, but I think that there is a, there's a much bigger pain there that he didn't tap into initially. Right? I mean, I kind of got what he was doing, but it's, it's very clear that we go through life accepting medi mediocrity with the clothes we wear. And there's a huge, huge difference in, in how you feel and how you live, how you present yourself and how you interact when your stuff fits properly. And I think that there's a real emotion there that almost everyone feels that I would have really hit home on when he was closing. When do you think it's appropriate? You mean, you know, making the case to be emotional with a business like Domainscape, where I'm sure you could find some interesting emotional parallels, right? He, he had some interesting things up there. But when do you, where, how do you find that balance? When do you say this is, this is just all ROI and all business, or this is aspirational, or this is a, you know, a very deep sort of personal connection? How do you, how, when people here are thinking about, and not just their own business present, you know, their, their own, the company they founded, but just any, any presentation in general, is there a process you use to try to understand what your audience is and how you can best connect with them? Um, so I would say you have to figure out who your audience is and how to best connect with them because if you don't, your business will fail. Um, so that's, that's work. Again, it's a lot of iteration. It's a lot of exploration. And I, as, I, as, you meant, as you mentioned, I've been mentoring for Techstars for a long time and I've mentored hundreds, hundreds of startups that have gone through the program. And virtually everyone that comes to me and they talk about what they're doing, and I ask who this for, who is this for, and they say for everyone, I say, you're dead. Because if you cannot truly describe your target audience as specifically as you possibly can, you will lose because you don't have enough time, money, and resources to reach everybody. 
You want to know exactly who to go, go after because you want to know what their pain points are. You want to know how to connect with them emotionally. You want to know exactly how to talk about their life and how you're going to make their life better, faster, quicker, easier, whatever it is you're doing to be able to communicate the value prop. And how do you advise those companies to try to determine, you know, especially early stage companies, sometimes, you know, they make assumptions that prove that to be wrong. You know, Jacob might think his, his target customer for Woody's is very different than the people who ultimately buy it. How do you balance those things? Pick one, test, and move, uh, which is kind of a theme for your whole business when it's a startup. Um, but you have to choose, and choosing is really hard because you always, like, you, you never want to say no to anybody. And you never want to feel like you're missing a potential customer, a potential audience. But the truth is you will get many more customers faster if you focus than if you try and make everybody happy. And so to know who it is, pick one, choose, test it, get data. If it's not working, shift. Right? And that's kind of, you know, when we think about how to grow our business, which I, you know, I think kind of what the people were asking about on the survey, that is the absolute strategy for the whole business. Right? And you know, when you're starting out a business, and you're, you have limited funds, limited resources, limited time. The only way to maximize that stuff is to focus as, as much as possible. Right? What are my absolute priorities for the next three months? What do I have to get done in the next three months? What's the next major milestone I have to accomplish for this business? How do I focus all my time, money, and resources against those things? Until I realize they're wrong. But until I know they're wrong, I'm damn convinced that they're right, right? And I'm focusing everything I can against those efforts until I hit that wall. And either I go through the wall or I stop dead. If I stop dead, I turn left and I go as fast as I can this way until I can't go anymore, right? Because that's the only way to really figure out what's working, what isn't working, how to beat a competitor, how to get that business going. So whether it's your target market or your technology focus, or you know, you, you, whatever, or your partnership strategy, whatever it is, like make a choice, get everyone in the company focused on it, go as fast as you can in that direction until you realize it's the wrong direction. Who did you think your original target audience was with Pivot Desk, and and what's it turned out to to be? So the original target audience um, in the marketplace, we thought, which is the key there, yeah. um, was small early stage companies of three to five people from a guest perspective, these are the companies that needed sh shared space. And post-Series A companies of 20 to 30 people that had just signed a lease and had extra space in the lease. And that's where we focused. And I'm glad we did because that was definitely our initial audience. And that's how we got traction and how it moved. What's nice, and I think it's nice now because we focused, and this is what happens if you tend to focus, is once you focus and get some traction, your market starts expanding left and right. And you start getting different audiences on both sides of that market. And it's either by word of mouth, or if you've made success this way, maybe now you have a little more marketing investment to focus in some of the other areas. But if, you didn't, if we didn't choose early, we never would have had the ability to go wider. Right? So when, when we started, a lot of our investors, um, or I should say potential investors, because I didn't let any of them actually invest, said, you, you know, you, what you're doing is wrong. You should be going after brokers. You should be going after landlords. You should be going after the commercial real estate market because they're the people that are dealing with this every day and they have the inventory and they can drive demand. And um, I didn't and I ignored them. And I realized that while they are probably right eventually, those people were, would never give me the time of day until I built a functioning marketplace that was already working.
So we completely ignored that target market for three and a half years of our business and focused specifically on the people that had the biggest pain point, the business owners, the people sitting across the table from the broker, like I had done many times, signing a document that oftentimes had personal guarantees involved, sometimes even much more onerous terms, because they had no other choice and proceeded to get up from that table, run to the bathroom and vomit. I say that because I was there, that's me. I'm, I mean, I'm talking about me, like I was that person many times. So we focused specifically on the business owners, whether they had signed a lease or needed a place to grow their business. We ignored the commercial industry completely and we built a functioning marketplace. And now that we have that marketplace working and our brand is strong and customers trust us, um, now the commercial industry is starting to come to us. So I don't have to convince them anymore. Their customers are convincing them and they're coming to us as a better solution. When launching a marketplace, you have a pretty sizable chicken and egg problem, you know, just sort of traditional issue in general. And then you have a location element as well. How did you, what was your strategy for You're launching? You're just trying to impress me, right? <laughs> trying, trying it's a three-dimensional graph you got going there. You want me to throw a few other stresses <laughs> sure. in there? Yeah, I mean, how do you, so how did you launch that effectively? You know, did you fake it with some space that you had leased yourself? Where did you start and how did you build the first, you know, do you, I bet you remember the first three transactions, if not many mm -hmm. more. What were some of those and how did you make them happen? Um, so we focused on a test market. And so we were in Boulder and we used Boulder as a test market. The way we did it initially is door to door, hand to hand, knocking on doors, shaking hands, delivering checks, having conversations. Um, we were trying to prove out the model. We didn't build any code. We walked around the streets, met our friends saying, hey, I know you've got extra space. Would it be cool if I found a company to share that space for you, with you? If we did that and we handled the payment for you and we handled all the details so you don't have to worry about it, would you give me 10% of those transactions every month? And it wasn't until we had about seven or eight people actually doing it that we built code. So that's how we tested it. We tested it by hand, door to door, the hard way. Um, and that's how we knew that it would actually work. We still didn't know how big it could grow and how we could scale it, but at least we knew this concept would work. People were willing to pay for it. They weren't just saying, yeah, I'd do that. They are saying, I'm doing that. Um, so we always led with things that don't scale. So I want to talk about that because that's such an important part of, I think, the startup process. How did you document the data that you collected in that process? Did you raise funding before you did that? Did you recruit a team before you did that? How, how far down the road were you before you started knocking on doors? Um, I had an angel investor. But again, I, you know, I'm lucky. So I, this is Pivot Desk is my fourth startup. Um, and I have track record with a few other startups. Um, and so the people that I had worked with in my previous companies when I presented the business model for Pivotest says, that sounds great, let's go do it, and they invested some angel money. So, you know, that was, that was easy. I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but, you know, but it's because I put the hard work in before that and I had track record and I'd worked with investors who trusted me. So we had some angel investment before we 
went out and really tried to, I didn't hire anyone yet. It was really just me at that point. Um, but then we went hardcore on door to door trying to figure out the model and trying to build a business and brought a few people on and then um, you know, brought some technology in and started building code to backfill what we saw going on with the business. So, but a lot of people I think start with, I have an idea, I need a co-founder, a tech co-founder particularly. Um, the approach you just outlined is very different. What's something that you see, maybe some of the tech stars companies, mistakes that they're making in how they could get really scrappy in testing some of those early ideas? Um, like what, what are the lessons you can share about, about that kind of an approach? Yeah, so there's a couple of things I want to talk about there. And so hold hold the what mistakes they do before they build a business question. I want to start with the co-founder question because you said people get an idea, they think they have to go out and get a co-founder, and and so there's there's this perception around the the need for co-founders doing startups. Um, I would my counsel to anyone that's starting, especially if it's your first business, right, your first startup. If you've never done a startup before, um, I would highly suggest finding a co-founder. Not because you need a technical co-founder, not because you need someone that can build code. You may be technical also, maybe you need a business partner. I would suggest a co-founder because you need someone to talk to. Right? Like this is incredibly hard. This is a, a mental wrench. I mean, the, the, the stuff that you struggle with every day when you're out there trying to grow your business no one should ever have to go through that alone. It's an incredibly lonely process to start with. And if you don't have a co-founder you can trust to help talk through these things with and help build your business, you're going to be pretty unhappy a lot. And, and that's not a good place to be. Um, there are other options. And I would say even if you, don't, even if you have a co-founder, the second thing I would recommend is find yourself a mentor, or mentors, plural. Because it's really, really critical that you have people to talk to that have built businesses before, that understand the pain of getting told no by 30 angel investors, or told you don't know what you're talking about, or trying to figure out how the hell you're gonna make payroll tomorrow when it's Thursday night and you don't have enough money in the bank, or you, how you have to fire your best friend or telling your spouse or significant other that you don't know if you're going to have money for the mortgage or the rent next month. Um, so it's really important to have people to talk to that have gone through this before. Because once you have those people, you start to realize that you're not the only idiot going through this. Right? Like, there's millions of idiots that have gone through this. And they've all suffered the same pain and the same frustration. And it's very enabling to realize that there's a lot of other people out there that you're not alone because it's a very lonely position because you don't like to talk about it, right? It's like when you talk about you doing a startup, like, killing it, <laughs> of course, fuck yeah, killing it, we're awesome, right? Like, that's all you want to say and that's, you know, and that's bullshit. But people don't, like, they, they hate to admit how hard it really is. They don't think people want to hear it or they don't want to admit weakness, right? Or they don't want to admit failure and the ego can be a nasty, nasty thing sometimes. So it's really important to have that co-founder surrounded by mentors, people you can talk to in a community. So I, I couldn't agree more having had a variety of co-founders, but also having broken up with some. And so what do you, how do you identify the right people to, I mean, that's a, that's, to me, that's like a marriage. It's a long partnership. 
average startup lifespans eight years, many or many longer. That's a lot of that's a lot of hours with somebody. Yeah, what are you good, looking for? It's a great bus, and you're asked for ten years to be an overnight success, right? <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. The problem with that question is that life changes and business changes. Um, so there's no way to predict where you're going to be and what's going to happen. I think what you need is someone you can be absolutely frank with and comfortable speaking very openly with. And I think the difference between a true co-founder and an early hire, and I, I get that a lot of people have something going, there's like, I think I need a co-founder. I say, well, do you need a co-founder or do you just need an early hire? Do you need a VP of marketing or a VP of like, Then you really need to figure that out for yourself. But a, a true co-founder is someone who you can truly speak with openly and honestly. It doesn't mean you don't fight. I've seen a lot of good co-founder fights, and fighting is good because that's how you work. You know, you want to both be able to express your opinions and work through issues and make decisions and decide which way to go. And, and so you need people you can have that kind of relationship with, and you need people you can trust, and you need people that you're comfortable being incredibly transparent with. So those are really the, the keys to look for in a kind of skill set, right? But that's, you know, I think from a skill set perspective, what's important is to know what you suck at and then find people that are really good at the stuff you suck at, right? Because that's the right way to build a good team. Um, but it's, it's, as about, it's as much about moral support as it is about technical capabilities and skill sets. If you just need someone with a certain skill set, I'd say hire somebody, you know, make, make it a hire. They'll make it a co-founder. Um, but then the dilemma is life changes, the business changes. Um, you know, there's a lot of early stage startups that I talk to where there's two people right out of college, they're both developers, that one says, all right, I'm the CTO, and the other says, I'm the CEO. It's like, that's great. Maybe for right now. But as that business changes and the business has different needs and roles change, people need to change with those roles. And people need to understand that they can't, you know, if, if you have no real work experience, you may do a great job getting income from here to here, but you may not be the CTO from here to here. Or you may not be the CEO from here to here. And that's, that's a real ego thing. And so people need to be open to that. And it's when they're not that it usually falls apart. So what about um, what some people call, and I can definitely relate to this, the silent co-founder, AKA the spouse at home. And, uh, you know, this lifestyle can be a pretty big burden in the family. Has that affected your, your home life? Uh, yeah, every day. Um, I have one big advantage there in that my wife is the person that talked me into going to my first startup. So through all the pain and struggle and frustration, I can always look at her and say, yeah, this was your idea. <laughs> so I have a little leverage there. I bet that goes over real well. It did for, it did for a little while. Um, but you know, this is, this is a lifestyle decision, and it's something that if you do not have the support and understanding of your spouse or significant other, life will be really difficult. Um, and it's, trust me, the, you need that support. Um, so I would highly recommend having that conversation in a very open way, if it's something you're thinking about doing, um, and making sure both sides are on board and they're committed and they understand the expectations and the expectations are really the important part. What are we willing to sacrifice? How much time are we willing to give it? When do we know to say no more, right? And 
you know, that has to be a very, very open conversation because otherwise it can, it, and it can and does lead to very difficult personal situations. Have, do you have any hard and fast rules? Like, you know, we've had, we've had Brad Feld out, who I know you noticed to speak here about some of the way he manages those relationships. Gary Vaynerchuk has, has been here and talks about, you know, basically working 24 hours a day, Monday through Friday, and shuts off on the weekends. Do you have any rules that you like to, you know, abide by so that things don't... You mean like your, personal rules? Yeah, between, with, with the family, yeah, I, you know, at the time. I do, and, it, and it's, it's interesting, too, because it translates also into um, work culture rules for me as well. So I'm married. I have two kids. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. I like to have dinner with my kids. I like to see them on the weekends. Um, and so I make decisions around how I need to work. And so I had a conversation the other day with a new entrepreneur who had a day job and was working on a startup in the evening. And he says to me, I can't wait to be able to quit my day job so, so I don't have to work as hard and this will be easier. And I said, you're an idiot. I said, if you're working this hard now, you're going to be working just as hard only just on your startup. Like you, it's not going to change unless you decide it's going to change. And that's really the important part, is you have to make personal decisions around how you're willing to work and how you're willing to lead your life. Because if you don't, work will take over. It will, you will sacrifice other things. And let's remember, the odds are you're going to fail. I'm not being a dick. Those are the odds. That's the math, right? Odds are you're going to fail. We still choose to believe we're going to be the ones that buck that trend and, and survive, but odds are you will fail. So let's just play the odds. You bust your ass. you 24-7 on a business. You destroy your relationship. You lose your friends, and your business fails. Now where are you? <laughs> right, so like, you need to make decisions around how you want to run your life and how you choose to invest both personally, financially, and emotionally in what you're doing. So I have very... I mean, you know, my employees know that I'm not there late at night. I leave the office, I go home, I pick my kids up from school sometimes, we have dinner, I, I may go back online later and interact, so not always, but a lot of the time I am and I'm working. I'm usually in the office early, but that's how I work. I don't work tons on the weekends. I, I do stuff I have to do on the weekends, but I don't consider weekends work days. Some people do, that's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying you have to make your own choices and the, the kind of bridge I was trying to make to a culture perspective there, and this was a real wake-up call for me. So it's really important as a leader or CEO or someone that's running or managing a business to realize that people are different. And I know that's a fairly general statement, but we have this tendency to believe that we should all work the same way, that we should all be in early, we should all be staying late, or we should all be working the same hours, and we need to get this stuff done. And, and that's a recipe for disaster also. And this was a big struggle for me, too, especially with, with this startup, because, um, you know, I come in early. I'm usually the first person there. Occasionally, there's one or two other people there when I'm early. If I leave at, you know, 6 o'clock or 6.30, and there's not a bunch of people still there, like, I'm stressed, right? Why aren't people here busting their ass? Like, we're a startup. Why isn't shit getting done? And it really wasn't until we, um, we started using Slack Internally, everyone know what Slack is, internal chat master communication platform um, for the business, that I realized that people were getting stuff done all the time, just in a time frame that fit their life, right? So I'd 
you know, get out, hop online at midnight or something, and there'd be a conversation going on in, in Slack with my dev team, real time, talking about an issue. They may have left the office at five o'clock. We live in Boulder. They like to go mountain biking or running as they should. You know, there's a, it's a lifestyle community, but so they leave the office, but they're getting shit done. And we have hardcore sprints and like stuff's being delivered. And it was a big realization for me that like this is, they don't need to work the same hours that I do. You know, they don't have to be in the office 24-7. We have a team, we have teams now in Boulder, New York, Boston, San Francisco. There's no way to know that there's consistent expectations around time among those people in different teams. But if you have on Slack, everything's getting done because they're all different. They all work the way that works for them and they manage their lives and they make their decisions, but they all have expectations. And the only thing that matters at the end of the day is, are they getting shit done? Right? I don't care what they're wearing, where they're working, what their hours are. I want to make sure the customers are happy, code's getting delivered, the marketing plans are getting done, and, you know, and deals are getting written. And as long as that's happening, I don't care how they work. Is that basically the onboarding speech i mean that's a i mean i know companies that do really well in that in that framework and i know companies where it's a it's a shit show and i'm curious how you maintain that level of, of freedom with accountability um so we do that through a couple of different things um the first is very clear expectations so it's very important to make sure people expect understand exactly what you expect from them. If it's amorphous, they'll do what they think they need to do, which may not be what you expect them to do, and then you run into real trouble. So very clear expectations around goals, jobs, deliverables, things that have to get done, and everyone is pretty darn clear around what they need to get done. The second, which I think is actually more important, um, well, no, they're both pretty important, is a culture of respect. Um, so we, we we actually spent a lot of time working on the values of the business. And one of those core values was respect from both sides. So respecting the people that you work with and earning the respect of them as well. And people know that if all of a sudden people on the rest of the team start losing respect for them or they don't trust them to get stuff done, that's a fireable offense. So it doesn't happen. And when it does happen, people are, people are let go. Yeah. Because the people that I have inside are too important to feel like they're working with people that aren't pulling their weight or aren't getting shit done or people that they can't trust. Because I, I can't afford, people don't work for me because of what I pay them. I can't afford to pay people enough money for them to work for me just because of what I pay them. I pay them when I can and I pay them good wages, but trust me, I know virtually everyone in my company could go out tomorrow and get a job for a lot more money than I'm paying them. So I have to create a culture that they enjoy working within. I have to create a business that they believe in, and I have to give them the freedom to help affect that business. I'm going to open it up for questions in a minute, so if you guys have some, start thinking about it. A um, couple communications questions. If you're a two-person startup, you know maybe you just launched an alpha product, and you're just trying to drum up some press, you can't afford a retainer for one of the, one of the PR companies, what's a scrappy way to get the attention of the press? Let me answer it this way. I think if 
what's important as a founder or a CEO or senior person at any business is to know the press that covers your industry, know what they're writing about, know what they care about, and give them stuff that fits. So being scrappy doesn't mean you have to do something crazy. It means you have to do smart things. And smart things being, means being able to have a conversation with a reporter in a way that you're actually providing them value. And if you actually provide value to them and you understand their beat and you understand what they're trying to cover and you understand their need for certain angles and you keep trying, odds are eventually you'll get some coverage because you never know when it's a slow news day. You never know when they're overwhelmed and they need an easier piece to do. You never know when what you're saying might actually fit perfectly with an idea they've had and try to put together. But the key is staying in front of them in an intelligent way. Too many people just spam the media with worthless bullshit press releases that no one could care less about. Right? And again, to almost the exact same thing what I was what I opened with. Right? Remember, no one gives a shit what you do. And if you just keep trying to tell people what you do, they're like, fine, you know what? I know 30 other people that do that. Why is it different? Why should I care? And it's the why should I care thing that's important to both your customers and the press and investors and everybody else. <clears throat> so the important thing to remember when you're trying to start a business is put yourself in that framework. Put yourself in the reporter's seat. Don't assume they should write about you because you think your shit don't stink. Because they could care less. Give them a reason to care. Give them something different. Give them something that works with what they're trying to accomplish. And that involves reading their stuff and understanding how they write. And you know, and <clears throat> if you don't have an agency with a lot of people to, to think about that full time, it's your job. So literally, if somebody's in this space right now, do you think they should tomorrow read 10 articles, shoot the guy a note, say, hey, this was interesting, you know, just a, just a comment to start the dialogue? What I would say is know the, the reporters that cover the industry that's relevant to you. Read what they write. Comment on the articles. Send them email. Twitter is actually a great way to, to engage with a lot of them, as long as you do it the right way. Hey, great article. Here's some more information on that. Or we've gone deeper on that if you're interested. But it, it can't be self-promoting bullshit. It has to be relevant comments in a way to engage. Start, it's just about it's starting a relationship. Yeah. Right. What do you think about the mix of using tools like a Medium or you know, posting it internal versus looking for a third-party outlet? I don't think it's about tactics. I think tactics are different for everyone depending on what your strategy is and what you're trying to do. I, I think you need to work backwards. right? So what's my goal? Who's my audience? Why should they care? What is the best ways to reach them? It's always different. right? That You have millions of possible tactics at your disposal. There are no right answers or wrong answers. Your job is to figure out the right combination of those tactics to accomplish your goal. A lot of that is testing, right? And you, you very rarely know what the right and wrong answer is until you test and you see which one works. But there's not a one-size-fits-all answer. There's a lot of good platforms, interaction tools, you know, email out, outbound management platforms. <clears throat> we, we do not have a, we're not starved for tactics and platforms. What we're starved for is intelligent thinking to think about what's my end game, how do we work backwards from the end game and put the right the right set of those tactics together to reach, to reach that yeah. solution. Um, you know, you're in the Denver community, or Boulder, excuse me, community. Boulder, Denver. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, you know, you got a sense a little bit, hopefully, of what our group's about. I know you're involved in the New York groups. You've spent a lot of time on the West Coast. 
What do you think community? Yes, we actually started the Boulder Denver meetup also. Nice. Record, I don't know if you knew that. But I did not. I did my, not know that. My former co-founder and I held the first Boulder Dune Tech meetup in our office in 2006. We had 15 people. He still runs it. It's now 300 people twice a month between Boulder and Denver. Nice. Good work. Um, I didn't do it. He did. No, no yeah. show list of shame at that group. What's that? No show list of shame at that group. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to ask Robert, but he's 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 run it the whole time. He's done an amazing job. I cannot take credit for it. It was him the whole way. But we had the first one in our office. It, it's a gratifying thing to do. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you see the the differences culturally around the country with some of the tech communities and what are some of the strengths and weaknesses are and, and what people can do to get involved in a more effective way. Let me kind of answer it this way, because I'm a, I'm a New Yorker born and raised and grew up in Westchester, lived in Manhattan for 13 years, um, but I've been in Boulder for 10 years now. And I have watched Boulder change significantly over those 10 years. Um, just a little point of fact, um, Boulder now has the highest per capita entrepreneurs of any city in the country. <clears throat> Not the most, right? New York and the Valley still have a lot more total, but per capita. So you walk down the street of Boulder and you will pass five or six founders every day. Um, and that has happened as a result of several things. Um, one, the cost of living, I think, started it. So people were looking for a place to live that wasn't New York or San Francisco they could afford and build technology. But things like Techstars, things like Foundry Group, the VC out there, um, things like the, the Meetup have fostered an atmosphere that is very much grounded in the philosophy of give first. So I get a lot of intros to people moving to Boulder from New York or San Francisco and and I, it's funny because I, I meet with whoever I have time to meet with and we'll talk to them about what's going on. And we finish the conversation and like, like, wow, that was like you were actually trying to help. I'm like, yeah. Like, that's not usually what we get. And that was actually why I moved to Boulder initially. So we were, my co-founder and I were both here in New York starting the business and we actually got our funding from Spark out of Boston. And we we're looking to fill out the round. And um, I had another friend of mine from a previous startup who had moved out to Boulder earlier to start a restaurant. <clears throat> and we called him up because he had some background um, in the investment world. And um, he said, you know, I'm, I've kind of been out of the investment world for a while. I'm doing this restaurant thing. But I know a couple of the investors out here. Why don't you come and I'll introduce you. And we were blown away by the fact that they actually cared about us and our business. Like we weren't just some piece of meat that they could maybe benefit from, right? And it was the fact they invested, they were introducing us to people, they were helping us, and they honestly cared, um, which is why we moved out to Boulder. And that kind of philosophy, I think, is has been ingrained in the community. You know, one of the advantages we have is it's a small community, certainly comparatively to New York and New Jersey. And the advantage, which is both good and bad, depending on your perspective, but one of the advantages of a small community is bad players don't last very long. And so we, we, bad people tend to not survive very long in Boulder because we have no patience for them. Um, so that's, Where do you bury them? <laughs> they, they usually end up skulking off to either coast, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, just to your comment, what I would recommend is always start with how can I help. I think too many, too many people start a meeting with what can you do for me. 
And certainly here and certainly in the Valley, you get that all the time. And if you simply start a meeting with, how can I help you, and actually care and mean that, then that's the best way I find to make real relationships, to engage with people in a real way, to actually <clears throat> make a difference. And it, you know, it's funny too, because on the flip side of that, one of, one of the, the real <clears throat> and sayings in the investing world, which actually turns out to be true, is if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. And um, the, that plays out very well in Boulder, when you, when you sit down and you, and you meet with someone and you say, listen, I just need some help. Here's what I'm working on, what do you think? You'd be amazed how much more people get engaged and want to help and actually potentially even invest, as opposed to saying, here's what I need, what can you, you know, like, do this for me, or do you want to, do you want to invest, or can you do, like, it's just a very different perspective. So I think, I, I don't, I'm not an expert in the New York tech scene, I'm not an expert in the Valley, I'm an expert in Boulder, but I would say what we all need to do a little more of is opening up with how can I help. Good response. So we're going to take one question from this side, one from this side. I see you've got one right there. So go ahead, Mike. Uh, Dave, thanks for being here. Much appreciated. Uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, what do you do about founderitis? When you've got the founders who don't have the skills to take it to the next level and don't realize it. So the question is, what do I do when there's two founders that don't have the skill to take the business to the next level don't realize it. It's not really for me to do, right? I'm not an investor. I'm not in charge of their business. Um, are you asking, like, how do I counsel them if they're talking to me? Or how, to, like, as an advisor, <clears throat> I tell them to wise the fuck up or move on. And, you know, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a You really shouldn't sense. beat around the bush so much. Yeah. Well, I, I don't have time to beat around the bush. This, I have too much other stuff to do, and so do they. And that's really the point. And I, I think the, you need to be very direct. Um, and the best counsel you can give them is say, you're going to fail. Screw around like this, you're going to fail. Quit now. Don't waste my time. Don't waste your investor's money. Don't waste your employee's time. This is not how this works. So make a decision now, right? And, and it's really important to be blunt and obvious um, to kind of answer that on the flip side. Um, I truly believe that one of the biggest killers of businesses is passive aggressiveness. The inability to make a decision or the avoidance of decisions. And that is why many, I have seen many, many companies fail because people avoid issues instead of dealing with them head on, straight away, as clearly as they possibly can. Um, the, the only advantage you have when you're a startup is speed. Speed and execution. And if you avoid decisions, you're not executing the right way, you're not moving in the right direction, and you're not doing it quickly. Um, and the real problem is they, those decisions in a small company, because the, the lack of decisions and friction between co-founders or inability to make decision becomes much more obvious in a startup because there's not as many layers hiding it from anybody else. And once your employees lose faith, you're dead. Right? So you can't screw around like that. And that's the exact counselor advice I would give to two founders. Like, make it, here's your options as I see them. Feel free to come up with your own, but come up with them right now. Time box the decision move forward and make it work or make it or stop making it work because otherwise you're wasting everybody's time. 
Somebody from over here. Or back from over here. Yeah, right there. value you can provide to a good mentor is to bust your ass to build the best business you can possibly build and be the best person you can be while you're building that business. If they're looking for something other than that, they're not a mentor. They're an advisor. And there's a real difference between mentors and advisors. And let me be very specific there. I get a lot of, a lot of companies come to me and say, hey, listen, I want to put a board of advisors together. How do I find them? It's like, why do you want a board of advisors? Well, because I need to get certain things done. Fine. An advisor is someone, by the way, this is me speaking. It's worth what you just paid for admission <laughs> to come listen to it, right? It's just a data point. Ignore it, use it. I, you know, I want, I'm, I'm not a, an attorney. Um, in my mind, advisors are people that have very specific tasks around the business and are compensated as a result for those tasks, usually in equity, not cash. But it's, hey, I need to get into this industry. You happen to be an expert in this industry. Can you make three introductions for me? In, re in return, I will give you X number of shares that vest over three years, cancelable at any time if either side believes this is not working out. That's an advisor, in my mind. A mentor is someone that says, what are you struggling with? What can I do to help? They're not compensated. They're not on the board, they're not paid. Not to say that a board member can't be a mentor. They can. But they play two different roles there. Right? So a mentor is someone that believes in you, that wants to help you, and is willing to give you the time when you call at 11 o'clock at night saying, holy shit, I have no idea what to do. Here's what's going on. What do you think? And they'll take that phone call. Right, so there's a real difference between mentors and advisors. People ask me all the time, how do I find mentors? There's no yellow pages for mentors. You find mentors by interacting with people you respect, providing value, interacting in a genuine way, and getting them to understand what you're trying to do and getting them to care. And then asking. And it's not so much, hey, would you be my mentor, but Hey, would you mind if I called you every now and then while I'm struggling through some issues? You seem to be someone that really knows this. I think we have a good relationship. If you say no, that's fine. But I could really use your help. So that's kind of the way I look at separate the two. So normally I have one last question, but I, you brought up a topic that I, I want to add a, a bonus, which is... I got nowhere to go. So, well, you know, these guys I'm, might. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we want to leave them wanting more. So a lot of people pursue this career path, right, in sort of the pursuit of happiness in general. Yet there seems to be a common trait that I find among other founder friends, which is something I heard Sean Parker recently describe as uh, founder amnesia, success amnesia, right? That like he's always, even he's had all the success with, or so-called success and 
literally billions of dollars in the bank, yet still feels like maybe he hasn't, he's not successful. And I, when I heard him say it, I thought, wow, this is not just my own problem. There's a lot of mommy issues out there. <laughs> so, I'm, well, I was going to, I'm wondering if you, if, well, it's also part of the drive, right? This is what keeps you wanting more. How do you balance that and like take stock in what's going well today, but stay on fire for tomorrow? So again, I think that's a very personal question and varies a lot among people. And one of the things that I don't like doing is using the media profiles as a, an overlay for how we should all be. So I, I think there's definitely people out there that are like that. I'm not one of them, but there are many people that are. I think what's really important, especially if you're starting, a, if you're founding a startup or you're busting your ass to try and build a business, is to realize why you're doing it. And so, for example, personally, this is a very stressful thing, right? This is not easy. I've put myself through the ringer several times, but I, I get home and as stressed as I am, I realize that I love the people I'm working with, I love what I'm trying to do. I like being able to make decisions that are, can actually affect my business and hopefully help many, many other people as a result. I like not having a boss, personal thing. I'm scared shitless about whether or not I'm gonna have a business next year. I'm scared shitless about losing my investors' money, not being able to support my family, or my kids are getting ready to go to college. You know, like, I'm pushing 50, this is, you know, this is not an easy world to be in, but it's what I love doing. So I choose, I choose that pain, right? That's my torture, right? And you know, that's, you can probably should make a website about that or something. But, um, but those are very, very personal decisions. And I, I, there's a lot of people that I've spoken to that they say, hey, I'm thinking of doing a startup. I've got a corporate gig, it's been okay, but I'm kind of bored. And, I'm looking at these three ideas, what do you think I should do? And I said, don't quit your job. Because if you're just looking at three ideas as maybe doing a startup, you're not gonna work. Right? This is gonna be miserable for you. You're gonna be out on your own, you're gonna say, what happened to my teeny budget? What happened to my minions? What happened to my, like, this is, this is hard. I actually have to do shit? Right, like this is really hard. Unless there's something you are really passionate about, like you really believe could be awesome, not just because it sounds awesome, because you believe it can be awesome. And if it is awesome, would you be proud of it? Not just proud of making money, but proud of what you built? Then those are good reasons to do a startup. Don't do a startup to wear the t-shirt. Right, that's an expensive fucking t-shirt. <laughs> so the last question, that's a great closer by the way. Um, is really about sort of the mantra you mentioned before. One of the things that's important to us is that idea of sort of helping your neighbors. And so I always end with what can we as a group do tonight or tomorrow, some actionable item we can actually do to either help you personally or help Pivot Desk? Well, I mean, quick plug. If you know anyone has extra space, convince them to share it on Pivot Desk and help other companies. That's the only request I have. But what I would say from your perspective, what you can do, it's a couple of things, <clears throat> and I'll get a little philosophical here. Um, realize that everything you do matters, not just to you, but to everybody else. And 
set an example for everybody else. I think, you know, this, is, this has been really obvious to me recently just as a father watching what's going on in the political world and the sports world and all other shit. There's too many assholes out there. And when we interact every day with all the potential customers and employees and investors and people that we interact with, it's really important to know that you know your actions make a difference. And start businesses for the right reason, treat people the right way, do the right thing, and be be an example. Because we are we are living in a world right now where we all we have are bad examples. So we need some of them running for president. <laughs> David Mandel, everybody. So one of the things that we do here, I don't know if you peeked at this, hopefully not, but uh, to thank you for coming out tonight, we teamed up with the mayor and we give you a, certi a mayoral certificate of excellence in innovation. That is awesome. Isn't that cool? Thank so you thank you very, you very much. much. Thank you all for your time and your questions. Are you going to be able to hang out to the bar afterwards by chance? It's on uh, the way to I'm, the path. I'm, it, I, it depends. You have to ask. We'll hang out here for a few minutes yes. at least. We're going to yeah, wrap I'm, up. I'm, I'm, I'm a passenger, so you have to ask my driver, but whatever, <laughs> okay, good. whatever my driver does. We will take you along for the ride. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank hang you. out for a minute. We're going to be done in a minute. I just have a few announcements. Hope you enjoyed the episode today. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out on our future episodes. From the team at New Jersey Tech Meetup, we hope you're having a great day and we look forward to spending more time with you in the future.